my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And not too long ago, somebody asked me about the issues of what counts as canon in terms of Tolkien's Middle-earth writings. And this is a tricky question when it comes to the topic of Middle-earth, because both because we have a possibly an issue with the definition of the term canon, and also because the actual canon, if even once we define it properly, is pretty difficult to nail down. So, first what I want to do is talk about what is and is not the definition of canon for purposes of talking about Tolkien's Middle-earth corpus, and then discuss the issues of determining what fits within that definition, and you know, what things we might include and what things we might not include. So, first let's start with definition of the term. This gets a little bit tricky just because our, you know, for a lot of people, and there's probably not a whole lot of people who have a, another really strong association with the word, but of course, anytime you get a Christian involved with the word canon, you're going to get involved with the issue of which books of the Bible are actually legitimate books of the Bible. That's a very common use of the word canon. The canon of Scripture is which books of the Bible do you include and which, you know, even to some extent, which parts of books of the Bible are actually legitimate and which ones are not. Tolkien's canon is a very different question than that because we're not so much looking at which pieces of literature belong within the scope of Middle-earth stories as which versions are the correct versions. We're also... There's another sense in which this is important, too, because for the Christian talking about the canon of Scripture, you've got the the whole backdrop of uh, scriptural inerrancy. Not every Christian believes in scriptural inerrancy, but that is a big issue for a lot of people, and it's why for a lot of people it's a very important thing to determine what counts as you know part of the canon of Scripture, because if Scripture is inerrant, doesn't contain any errors or fabrications or lies, anything like that, then you have to figure out, well, which ones are the ones that actually don't have any of those things, because, you know, you could have some book out there written by some author that was trying to get recognized as canon, even though it wasn't, you know, inspired by God or whatever criteria you want to use for that purpose. Tolkien, of course, is not writing something that anybody would consider to be inspired by God or inerrant or whatever. But the reason this is important is Tolkien's writings are not necessarily 100% accurate in the sense that, as at least the Hello Future Me channel, and I think somebody else, I want to say I remember somebody else covering this, but I couldn't find the video, have discussed... Tolkien uses an unreliable narrator, particularly in The Lord of the Rings. We can't always be 100% trustful of the narration in his stories because we are getting them through the lens of somebody who is, in a sense, biased or otherwise untrustworthy. Go check out Hello Future Me's video on that. I'll try to remember to link that in the description below. Um, but the idea is, for example... With Lord of the Rings in particular, 
it's kind of a cobbled together conglomeration of narratives. Because if you read the appendices, what we learn is The Hobbit was written mostly by Bilbo. Frodo kind of finished it up a little bit. Frodo wrote most of The Lord of the Rings, but it was supplemented by Sam. It was supplemented by Pippin and Mary, at least in the appendices. Parts were added by Findegil King's writer of Gondor. So we've got a bunch of different sources kind of going into The Lord of the Rings that are then you know put into a single volume, which we then get translated by Tolkien. This is the translation conceit, which I've done a video on, and I can link to that in the description below. So we've got a lot of different issues going on with this, and some of this comes down to bias, and one of the fun things that if you are following along with Exploring the Lord of the Rings by Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, one of the things that they tend to talk about is, well, do we think this passage was added by Sam, or do we think this one was added by Frodo, or Findegil, or whoever, but... The reason it becomes important is because you get, uh, you have to kind of psychoanalyze fictional characters a little bit because would Sam add anything to the story that is self-aggrandizing? Certainly not, even if it's true. So Sam is going to leave out some things maybe that would be useful, and Frodo is maybe going to be a little more pro-Sam because we know Frodo's attitude towards Samwise is a very, you know, highly, he highly regards Sam. And so you've got different kind of biases going into it. And even when you get to things like the Silmarillion, before you even consider some of the issues that I'll get to later about what actually is the official version of the Silmarillion stories, you have the problem of what is the source of the Silmarillion stories within the, the narrative framework? Because in later life, what seems to have been Tolkien's idea is that the Silmarillion is Bilbo's translations of the Elvish, which he gives to Frodo with the Red Book. And so Bilbo is translating Elvish versions of these stories, which themselves Tolkien kind of vacillated on. Are these Elvish stories? Are these Numenorean stories that were, you know, of the, the First Age that were kind of handed down by elves to Numenorians, but then kind of rewritten a little bit by Numenorians. So you've got unreliable narrator issues, possibly, even with the Silmarillion and things like that. So at no point with the canon are we talking about this is the 100% accurate version of what happened as if this were a true history of something that happened way, way, way long ago in Earth history, right? So what do we mean ultimately by canon when it comes to Tolkien's Middle-earth writings? I think what we have to admit here is that distinguishing between canon and headcanon is not really the same as it might be for other authors. Because for some authors you can say canon is simply what was written down and this is it. Headcanon would be, well, this wasn't written down, but I like to think of it this way. That is still kind of a valid distinction in Tolkien's writings, but there's also room for some canon versus headcanon where the headcanon may be almost just as valid as what we actually get in the published works, and I'll get to that. So the main definition I would give here for canon is what is the official final version 
that was intended by Tolkien to be the written version that was in some way passed on by Bilbo Frodo or whichever person was you know, instrumental in handing on that story such that Tolkien ends up with it and translates it. I think that's kind of how we have to look at that. So now that we have kind of a working definition of canon, which doesn't prove authenticity or accuracy of the story or anything like that, now we can analyze which things are actually canon. Now as a starting point, Tolkien himself seems to have treated, and this is another thing that Corey Olson emphasizes over and over again, Tolkien himself seems to have treated anything that had a published final form as a unrevocable thing that he couldn't really go back and change. So he, in some sense, treats The Hobbit, once it's published, and The Lord of the Rings, once it's published, as canon. Because they're, you know, they're published, they're out there, he can't just contradict them. Now, there are important caveats even to this rule because... When he says, for example, that you know, when, when we treat The Hobbit as, as a canon, that doesn't mean he can't change the story, because he does. And I've talked about, this is another thing I've talked about in a previous video, the, the Hobbit retcon issue. The Hobbit was retconned by Tolkien because the original version, and I'll link to the description on, I mean, link in the description to the video I did on this, the original version of The Hobbit has a very different Riddles in the Dark chapter where Gollum is a much nicer character and actually voluntarily gives Bilbo the ring, but then when he writes The Lord of the Rings and determines that the ring is this malevolent, corrupting force, it's like, this doesn't really work anymore. But he doesn't scrap The Hobbit. He allows that story to stand and instead says, well, okay, so here's what happened. Bilbo, being the unreliable narrator wrote the story that way because he wanted his claim to the ring to be beyond any doubt, but what really happened was this. So what really happened in The Hobbit was very different than what Bilbo wrote, but what Bilbo wrote was what Bilbo wrote in the original version. So there is a sense in which both the first edition of The Hobbit and the later edition, after he changed Chapter 5 and a few other things in other chapters, are both canon because we even get some stuff in the Lord of the Rings appendices about how both versions are floating around because the true version got out, but Frodo and Sam didn't want to actually change or delete anything written by Bilbo because of their respect for him. And so both versions are out there, and Bilbo's was written and, you know, it was written and published, and then Frodo and Sam's, you know, amended version, so to speak, was also written and published. So this is another really good example of the unreliable narrator issue because Bilbo is clearly an unreliable narrator and we even have kind of documentary proof of it within the scope of, you know, the story itself. So we can say, for example, that The Hobbit, both versions of it, are canon. There's another small caveat we have to take into consideration, though, because the first edition of The Lord of the Rings... And then the second edition of The Lord of the Rings have a few minor changes. The second edition corrects a few dates in the appendices, uh, some of the tale of years, and, and there's a, other minor changes. Some of those minor changes go beyond mere corrections to spelling and, and that sort of thing. They go to 
small but nevertheless important changes to the narrative. And some of that has to do with Tolkien later kind of reworking some of his ideas about, you know, how long, you know, not not how long do elves live, but how elven lives kind of work. And, and you can see this in the nature of Middle Earth in particular, where he's really working out how how does an elvish life proceed? Does it, you know, do, you, do they grow up within 20 years and then just live an indefinite, you know, as an indefinite 20-year-old forever, or they live in these weird cycles or whatever? And as a result of that, he kind of has to look at when Arwen married Aragorn and their respective kind of analogous ages, so to speak, like how... How old or how analogously old was Aragorn when he married Arwen, and how analogously old was she when he when she married him? And he and also like if if elves grow up really slow, has Arwen even had time to become a fully fledged adult yet? And so he had to work around a few dates and change a few of these things, and he kind of ascribes those to scribal errors. So. You know, there was a scribal error in the copying of the original Red Book, and it was corrected by Tolkien. And this is a thing that you can do, right? I mean, in, in examining ancient texts, we do know of examples where there are errors in copying over time. And, you know, this happens with the Bible. This happens with other books. It, it, it just happens. So, and, and you can usually determine some of these errors kind of easily. Like, there's famous examples, even within the Bible, of where a line kind of, you know, ends in one word and then it gets repeated again because the scribe kind of re-scanned the same line when copying. And those are easy to catch. Some are less easy to catch. So you've got first and second edition Lord of the Rings. Arguably, the second edition Lord of the Rings is more canon than the first because scribal errors really don't count as the original written record Therefore, second edition Lord of the Rings is probably more canon because it has corrections to those errors. The tricky part, of course, is when we start getting beyond The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and get into the Silmarillion and related materials. Because now we're talking about something that Tolkien himself never finished and published on his own. Christopher Tolkien had to finish that publish it with basically his best inference as to what Tolkien's final intentions were. But Tol but Christopher Tolkien wasn't even using final intention so much as his baseline as what is the latest completed version of a given story, because that's what he had to work with. He wanted to invent as little as possible. But there are instances where Christopher Tolkien does invent a few things for purposes of the Silmarillion. And I want to say, I'm trying to remember, but Corey Olson mentions in one of, it's either Exploring the Lord of the Rings, or I, I don't remember even which thing it was in that he mentioned this, but apparently Verlin Flieger actually got Christopher Tolkien to admit that there's a line in the the story about how Thingol had the dwarves making uh, put the Nauglamir necklace and the Silmaril together, and there's a line in there that Christopher just wholesale added, and I, I don't remember which line it was, but Christopher admitted, yeah, I invented that line. And it's kind of to fill in a gap in the narrative a little bit. So there are things that Christopher added to it, and of course he was also working with, I want to say it was, 
guy, Gavriel K is his name, I think, um, in putting all this together for the Silmarillion. So he's got help from an outside source, too, and they're both trying to put together all these different writings that Tolkien had and figure out, you know, we want a completed story as much as possible, but we also want to, you know, honor what seemed to have been the most recent wishes. And Christopher Tolkien, when he starts putting out his history of Middle-earth, admits that in a few places, you know, I kind of messed this one up. You know, I, in looking back through all the documents, I should have done it this way. And he'll admit that in a few cases. So the Silmarillion is a really tough one to nail down. And the the other thing about that is, with Christopher Tolkien's inferences, he may not always be right. You know, I mean, he may be right 98% of the time, but there may be a couple instances where maybe his inference is incorrect. And that could be because some manuscript was just completely lost at some point, or it could be, you know, because nobody's inference is as perfect as J.R.R. Tolkien's actual intent. You can never know what was in his mind, necessarily. So the Silmarillion is a really thorny problem when it comes to the issue of canon. Is the Silmarillion really canonical? Well, let's examine one particular issue, Gilgalad's uh, ancestry. This is an area... Well, and not only Gilgalad's ancestry, but also who's in the house of Finarfin or Finrod. I forget the line in The Lord of the Rings, but Gildor tells uh, Frodo and the other hobbits, we are elves of the house of, I think he says Finrod. But this is a little bit tricky because at certain points in the history of the writing, Finrod is actually who we think of from the Silmarillion as Finarfin and so the the house of Finar- Finrod means something different than it would when we read the Silmarillion. If he said Finarfin, then it would mean something more like what we would understand from the Silmarillion. But, you know, this gets tricky. And then Gilgalad, whose ancestor is, you know, who is his ancestor? That's a little bit of a tricky one, too, because based on all the writings that we have published, they are, you know, he comes from... Fingon. Fingon's, he's Fingon's son, I believe, who was sent south, you know, during the wars after the fall of northern Beleriand and survives in the Havens. But it seems that clear, and this is one of the things where Christopher kind of admits he might have messed it up, that he was actually, he in later versions, he should have been, I think it's the son of Orodreth, who was Finrod Felagun's brother. So there are issues with the Silmarillion where we can kind of look and compare with the Lord of the Rings, and it's not an outright contradiction, but the way the Lord of the Rings was written does not mesh with the way that Christopher Tolkien put things together in the Silmarillion, and so there, there are contradictions that are not obvious, and there are differences in what was intended and what ended up in the stories, and it gets tricky. So there's also, of course, problems like you know the 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 story of the children of Hurin, the the version that gets published in the unfinished tales has a lot more detail, a lot more information. Is that the one that Tolkien really wanted to go with, or did he want a much shorter kind of thing like what we get in the actual published Silmarillion? And then you get into stuff like, you know, things that were never published, like you know the 
the sequel to the Lord of the Rings, the the New Shadow or the Return of the Shadow. I always get it mixed up because the I think it's the New Shadow um, because the Return of the Shadow was originally kind of what he was going to call the Fellowship of the Ring, if I'm remembering right. So there's that story which he started but never got very far with. He kind of abandoned it. There's other things that he wrote, such as the Othrabeth of uh, Finrod Andreth, which is a debate between two characters who would have been around in the, in the First Age. Are these things canonical? Mm, I mean, most of these things never get finished, and that's why they end up in the history of Middle-earth or the unfinished tales of, like, you know, the story of um, Aldarion and Erendis in the Second Age, Numenor. There's all these unfinished stories. Do these count as canon? And this is where the concept of headcanon really kind of comes in and says, you know, you can accept that as part of the story or not, as you like, because there's nothing to say that he didn't. And another tricky thing here is early writings have ideas that then get left out of later writings, and Christopher Tolkien is quick to point out in most of these cases the earlier writings have lots and lots of detail that get, that get left out in later more compressed versions, but that doesn't mean that Tolkien rejected the idea. And there are even instances like this in Lord of the Rings, where some part of the Lord of the Rings has some narrative element that then gets cut later, but it doesn't necessarily even mean that Tolkien thought, well, that didn't happen. He just decided not to include it in the story for some reason. And it might not have even been because he consciously decided it. It might have been because he set aside that particular manuscript and lost it and therefore didn't include it when he rewrote the passage. So there are even things in other manuscript versions of The Lord of the Rings before the published one that might possibly have been intended to be in the final story, but we can't ever be 100% sure because he didn't end up publishing it, and it's not clear, did he actually abandon the idea? Did he reject the idea? Did he just set it aside for narrative purposes? There's a lot of really tricky things when it comes to this. So, you know, even with the second edition Lord of the Rings, we can't necessarily say that it's a complete 100% canonical work, and with the Silmarillion, we especially can't. Now, the issue of the Silmarillion and all these other associated works like the Othrabeth and the Return of the Return of the New Shadow, all these things, those are, you know, perfectly legitimate headcanon, if you will. I hate that term really, because what most people mean by it is this never happened in the story, but I just like to think of it that way. It's like okay, but I don't care about your headcanon. Like, <laughs> why should I care about your headcanon if you're just making it up for your own private enjoyment? Um, so, but I, I hate that term because what you're really saying is I just like making up fan fiction. It's really just fan fiction is what it is. I think a more appropriate use of the term is stuff like this, where it's like I have a an idea that the Othrabeth really did happen, even though it's not published. I think it should have been in the Silmarillion if it, if it had ever really been completed the way that Tolkien wanted it completed. And I think that, you know, this particular version of the Turin story is really the one that ought to be considered the final definitive version. You know, the one that gets published on its own as the Children of Hurin. That's the one, you know. So, I mean, that kind of thing, I think, is 
a legitimate use of the term headcanon. It's in my head because of whatever reason, you know, I'm either just because of my preference or because I think given the evidence this is the way Tolkien was going or whatever, this is the version that I think is, quote, canonical based on the definition we gave before, which is the final version of Tolkien's intent that he wanted published ultimately. So I think that's a legitimate use of the term headcanon in this particular realm because anything else really is just meaning fan fiction. But that's really kind of the overall view of what what is and is not canon. Like, I consider the published Silmarillion canon just because it's the published Silmarillion and it's a text that everybody can refer to and agree on to some extent with a few caveats like where we know for sure that Tolkien really was trending in some other direction, like the, the Gilgalad's ancestry and things of that nature. We have clear indications, and even in the Lord of the Rings, where you know it's like the House of Finrod versus Finarfin versus whatever. You know, those things where we have clear evidence that Tolkien wanted something different, we can, you know, we can attribute those to scribal letters, whatever. Um, but the ones that I treat as canon personally are The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion, with those minor exceptions. And I also tend to think of as canon the longer Children of Hurin story, the Athrabeth, the anything that has a seems like he had a pretty clear idea of what he wanted to do with a story but didn't ever finish it with stuff like Galadriel and Celeborn. Who knows? That is so unclear, and Christopher Tolkien even admits this is one of the thorniest problems in all of the history of Middle-earth stuff because it, he went in with so many different versions of the story. Uh, so, you know, pick your choose on that one, I guess. But there's just so many different things that you can look at. You know, the Aldarian and Arindus story, you know, that's a perfectly legitimate one to go, okay, I think that's legitimate, you know, because there's nothing to contradict it. And there's, Aldarian is an actual king in the line of, you know, kings in the Tale of Years in Numenor. So we know that he existed and there's no reason to think this story didn't happen the way Tolkien more or less wrote it. He just didn't finish it and never published it. So... That is my overall view on the issue of canon. Hobbit and Lord of the Rings have the strongest claim to canon. Most of the Silmarillion is a pretty good candidate for canon. Some of it not so much because some of the later intentions of Tolkien would have changed parts of it. Christopher just didn't have the material to work with in some ways. And therefore, some stuff is, some stuff isn't, and it's, you know... There's no harm in treating it as canon just as written. But if you really want to dig down and consider like the history of Middle-earth writings and here's where Tolkien's intent was going and this is the last thing he wrote which seems to be his last really clear intention, you know, if you want to piece together your own version of canon for the Silmarillion out of that, go for it. I don't have the time or energy to make that many decisions about something that's not that important at the end of the day. <laughs> so I just stick with the published Silmarillion as is. So that that's why the issue of canon is so thorny when it comes to Tolkien's Middle-earth writings. And those are some of the issues that you have to look out for. And, you know, what do you think is canon? 
I mean, what what are your reasons for thinking it's canon? That's ultimately, I think, what it really comes down to is which version do you think is the canonical version and why? If it's just out of pure preference, okay, fine. You know, I'm not going to complain to anybody about their picking one version or another out of preference because preference is a thing and, you know, when you have a bunch of options, you might as well pick the one you like. But when you start saying that I think this is the real version and you're going to put that out there on social media or whatever, then you need to start having reasons that are a little more substantial, like this seems to be Tolkien's latest intent or something of that nature, not just, I think this is the right one because I like it best. Well, that doesn't make it the right one. That just means you like it best. If you want to say you like it best, okay, sure. I mean, I do that with a lot of stuff within the Tolkien universe because you kind of have to at some point. Um, but if if you're going to make a decision on what you consider is the canon, and that's the word you're going to use, you need to have a little bit more behind that than just, this is the one I like versus the one I don't like. So, if any of you have particular thoughts on which writings do constitute canon, which ones don't, you know, leave those in the comments below. Let me know if you think i maybe considered some of this incorrectly in some ways, like what the definition of canon even is in this context, because that in itself is a kind of thorny issue. There's a lot to discuss on this, so, you know, feel free to put whatever you want in the comments section. There's plenty of conversation to be had. But if you enjoyed the video, please do give it a thumbs up, share it around, subscribe to me here on Rumble or on Odyssey or on a podcatcher. Got them all over the place there. Follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And you could support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.